Welcome to 5 Things About. Before we start, let me tell you about a new podcast called Eavesdrop on Ideas. It explores themes through the lens of artists, authors and academics. Our first episode was about the event horizon from science to art. We collected comments from amazing people, but the entire unedited interviews were so exciting we decided to publish them here on the 5 Things About channel. So here they are. Enjoy. I'm Peter Gallison. I'm a professor at Harvard where I'm a physicist, historian of science and filmmaker. Peter, tell us about the Event Horizon Telescope image. I understand you were involved in the project. How did you come to be involved and what is it? What is the EHT image? So the EHT, the Event Horizon Telescope, is a network of radio telescopes that together form an earth-sized telescope, a kind of virtual telescope, as if you had shards of a mirror distributed all over the earth and together they gave you the equivalent of one big mirror as big as the earth. And you need a mirror of that size to be able to image something as far away and as apparently small in the sky as a black hole. If you wanted to make an analogy, it would be like looking from Boston to Los Angeles and reading the date on a coin. That's how small the black hole appears on the sky. So for this reason, it requires a worldwide collaboration of telescopes, of radio telescopes, these big dishes. And I got involved with the project about five years ago with some colleagues here at Harvard, we started a, an interdisciplinary center for the study of black holes, because black holes seem to involve everything we know from mathematics and physics, astrophysics, philosophy. It really challenges our, the limits of our understanding. So we started this center and the Event Horizon Telescope Project, which has been going on and slowly building up over 20 years, was entering a new phase. And I found it so incredibly interesting that at that time I got involved in the imaging part. There are other parts that have to do with the theory of black holes or the instruments that have to be used, the experts on these big radio telescopes and so on. But the part that I was completely fascinated with is image making. So tell us about the actual EHT image, as you call it. Is it actually a photo as we understand it in photography sense? Or is it like a compilation of filters that enhances what you're looking at? Well, I should back up and say that I have a very expansive view about what counts as a photograph. I think that photography continues to change from its earliest days printing on glass and develops color and people began to make digital photographs. Uh, when you make a photograph with your camera, your cell phone camera, you're, you know, there's no film anymore. You can make photographs as Man Ray did without cameras by putting objects on photosensitive paper. Uh, photography is constantly pushing out the bounds of what counts as a photograph. I tend to have an expansive view about what counts as a, as a photograph. The photography is something that's always being challenged. People are always saying, well, 
you need a lens or you need a camera or you need film or it should be black and white or color photography really shouldn't count as part of the art historical development of photography. I mean, it took decades and uh, before color photography was first accepted. Uh, so in all these ways, I think we push the boundaries of what counts as photographic. But you could take the view that what's in a museum of, say, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which has the first footprint of an astronaut on the moon on July 20th, 1969, or the composite image of many different pieces glued together, attached together to form the image of the moon that was first taken by one of the early satellites that went around the moon. There's a long history in modern art of collecting photography beyond people who considered themselves to be artists, whether that meant bringing works in from aspects of photojournalism or science or artists. And so this is a long answer to your question, but I think that I think of photography as expansive in this sense. The Event Horizon Telescope picture is digital. It's composed of data that was taken across many different sites. Um, the only way you can get a telescope big enough and powerful enough to make an image is to be able to combine the work of all these telescopes distributed in the South Pole and in Greenland and in Arizona and in in Spain, Chile, it's a huge effort. And then once this data is collected, it has to be coordinated. And so you wanna be looking at the exact moment that a wave front of light is coming in from this black hole 53 million light years away. So there's a process of coordination on a supercomputer where all of this data is brought into alignment. And then you have to correct for variation in the different telescopes. Uh, one telescope may start recording a stronger signal and then get weaker for some reason, and that needs to be evened out. There are many different processes that have to go on to get the data in a form such that you actually could make an image. And then you have to test the whole network. You have to try testing to see if it can recreate correctly an image that we ourselves made, an artificial image of a blob or two disks. We sometimes in our testing wouldn't tell people what kind of image was going to them and we'd send something random like a picture of Frosty the Snowman. And we wanted to see if they didn't know what they would find, would they be able collectively to recreate the image of that snowman. So the process took a very long time. It took years to be able to develop a set of techniques for combining the data from all these different telescopes, processing it, testing it against artificial data, the way you would point a camera at a test pattern and make sure you could reproduce accurately that test pattern before you use the camera to photograph something that had never been seen before. You want to persuade yourself that your lens isn't creating artificial entities before you try to assure yourself that you really have seen something unusual. So it was years and years of work to get a system together where we trusted the telescopes, we trusted the data combination and alignment. And then 
in about nine or 10 months before the image was released to the world, which it was on the 10th of April, 2019, we began to see an image that knocked our socks off. And in that previous summer, when we began to get those images, one of the things we wanted to do was to say, let's compare all the different, we had four groups, each of them working independently. And we got together and said, let's share these images and see, do they look similar? And they did. So that was a moment of immense excitement. And then between that period of the previous summer to April of 2019, there was furious amount of work trying to test and see, could we be fooling ourselves? Could this actually be a disc and we were making it seem like a ring? Could it be distorted in shape? Were these variations in brightness on the lower part was much brighter than the upper part? Were these artifactual or were they real? So it was incredible amount of work to be able to assure ourselves that we had something that was robust, that was not just an artificial creation of one particular image making program or in the assumptions that we put into the image reproduction. Um, so there was a lot of, a, a tremendous amount of work by the 200 plus scientists on the collaboration to really assure ourselves that these were real and robust images. Thanks, Peter. I think a lot of people, their socks were knocked off by that image when we saw it. It was this incredible, astounding artifact of the past and the present and of all these great technologies and collaborations. And you've really written the book on this type of methodological complexity, haven't you, with your image and logic. Is this evidence of a black hole? Is this reliable evidence based on your research? I think so. You know, there are many tests that, I mean, we, I mean, what really, the whole project in a sense is designed to constantly challenge the kind of image that we were making to see if we could knock it off its pedestal in one way or another. The data from M87, named after the great 18th century French astronomer Messier, and he made one of the first catalogs of these objects that we know as galaxies, M87 is one of the biggest galaxies that we know of, and it has a very strange feature that's been known about since the early 20th century, which is there seemed to be this huge lighthouse beam that comes out of it and goes a distance of many times the size of a galaxy. A galaxy has 100 billion stars in it, like the Milky Way. And if you think of many galaxies together, the distances are absolutely vast. So it's a very strange, attractive, interesting, immense galaxy, this M87. And at its center, it's been known for some time that there was great activity. Exactly what that radio activity was, was not known. And then as people began to work on this more and more, they began to suspect that it might be a black hole, but not a black hole that's 10 or 20 or 30 times the size in mass of our sun, but millions or billions of times the mass of, of our sun. And these giants that seem to inhabit the center of every galaxy that we know about uh, are called supermassive black holes. So it was suspected, but not demonstrated definitively that there was a, a black hole there. And then we had other evidence from the great experiment called LIGO, which looks at 
sun-sized black holes that are merging together and their characteristic signal that they make as they fall into each other. So it was looking more and more like these things really are real, but people, including me, wanted to see a picture. And that just seemed like the final super definitive step in showing that these things really were out there. So I think the idea that you could see the black hole in the sense of you're seeing this billion degree hot gas that's orbiting not very far from the event horizon of the black hole was stunning, uh, not just to a general public, but to all the scientists who've been thinking about this for forever, I mean, for their whole lives. And I think that actually seeing a picture, even after we'd simulated it, we'd had good theoretical reason to have some expectation of what the image might look like. Nonetheless, when we all saw it, there was a sense of awe, of almost fear that, that comes over you thinking that this is, this is something, we're looking at a black hole the size of our solar system. It's just amazing. Peter, the actual image has now been put into a museum, is that right? Yes, I do various things in collaboration with the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and uh, I was talking to them about various things, and I um, were telling them, and I showed them this picture, and that, uh, I mean, a print of this, of the image, and they were so excited, they said, well, we, could we get a copy of this for the collection? So we printed it. My son, in fact, does a lot of work in, as a profession, in professional photography, and he, he orchestrated the details of the print that was made on museum quality paper and exactly the right specs for, uh, for the museum, which they'd, they'd given me. And on behalf of the 200 plus scientists, the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration, I gave the print to them. So I'm, we were all thrilled. I mean, some of my colleagues said, you know, in some ways, this is as great an honor as we've received to have the image taken into the permanent collection. So that makes the image an artwork in one context, but it's a scientific map in another context. Tell us about the sort of boundaries, how that transcends that boundaries of artwork and scientific map. Well, I think you're right. It is an image and an image in some way is a broader category even than the expansive category of photography. And there are many features of it that are different from you know, what you might think of classically as a film camera's product. But once you're used to a cell phone picture, thinking of, you know, can I take your picture? You know, this is a photograph I took of my cat. You're using highly processed digital information with charge couple device or other kinds of electronics that convert light into small amounts of electrical charge that can then be manipulated by what's essentially a computer. And you're making something that would have been, in technical terms, quite unrecognizable to the founders of, of photography in the late 19th and uh, mid to late 19th century. But nonetheless, we think of it as a photograph. I think that the work does have some features which cross over between aesthetics and science. And I think that's true of scientific images more generally. When scientists make images, they're aware in some ways of the way images, their image repertoire from everyday life, how it functions and what kinds of things are accepted as an image. For example, in, in the image of M87, 
we count as physically significant the differences in brightness of the different parts of the ring. They correspond to variations in the temperature from a couple to numerous billions of degrees. But you could have made the image in black and white with that same variation, or you could have had the image in blue. And we actually had a discussion in the image group, you know, should we make this in blue or in orange, for example? And one group of my colleagues said, well, you know, the hottest part of the flame is the blue part, not the orange part. Blue is a higher energy photon than a red photon, uh, so to speak. But we think of in our daily lives of red as an icon for hot. And on your refrigerator, we use blue as an icon for cold. People don't make the trademarks and symbols and advertisements of refrigerators in orange and red as a way of symbolizing being cooler than blue. They use blue or shades of blue. So we had this discussion, went back and forth, and we eventually settled on orange. Uh, which I totally agree, agreed with, but that is a decision and ultimately an aesthetic decision, uh, an aesthetic decision based on an understanding of the cultural associations that we give to color. So there is a world of map and interpretation, trying to understand why that bright part of the Southern sector of that iconic image of M87 is brighter than the top part is something that we modeled and we think of as we think of it as a swirling gas that at the bottom part is moving towards us and so gets brighter and more intense and in the less bright parts is flowing away from us and that that in a sense is what we're observing. So there are many aspects of the image that in fact are, as you say, a kind of map that gives us information. For instance, the diameter of the dark part of the black disc at the center gives us a way of measuring the mass of the black hole. We know it's about six billion, six and a half billion solar masses. And that's given to us from that image. On the other hand, our response to this image, our astonishment and wonder in a way is associated with the many associations we have of a black hole and of seeing some, you know, of feeling like we're, you know, we're, we are getting a more direct grasp of a black hole than anything previously. It's wonderful to hear some of the decision-making that went into the image as well. Really helpful for us on the outside in the public and um, particularly your reference to the cultural associations of color. You yourself in your career, you've worked a lot with artists such as William Kentridge and I think Andy Grayson most recently. Can you tell us a bit about your experience of this meeting point in your career and in um, maybe in a broader sense of art and science? Well, th it's been very important to me. I constantly talking about these things with uh, my wife is a professor of art history at MIT. And we have for many years written things together, done things together around the nexus of art and science. The collaboration with William Kentridge was very important to me. We worked together on a piece called The Refusal of Time, an installation with five screens and some structures within it with different voices, music, and associations with it. It was originally going to be integrated with a 
performance that would take place in it. And then we hived that off into a chamber opera called Refuse the Hour. And in that, the structure of that collaboration, which was enormously fun for me, I really had a, a great time with, with, with William, began when I saw a show of his that he was installing at the Museum of Modern Art. And he read a book that I had written called Einstein's Clocks, Poincaré's Maps. And we found in common this fascination with the aesthetics and technical world of the modernism of the early 20th century. So we began to meet every week for months in New York. He was doing an another opera at that Lincoln Center then. And we began to talk about this and to sort of imagine vignettes. Uh, for instance, one was about something that I found completely hilarious. You know my slightly odd sense of humor, that in Vienna and in in Paris in the 19th century, they pumped time in pipes under the city. They had these long pipes and they would pump compressed air when it was say 12 o'clock. And that pumped air would then reset the hands of a clock in front of each of the city halls that governed the various arrondissements of Paris. And this idea of something so mechanical, so pumpable as compressed air, and something so abstract as time just appealed to me immensely. And William immediately loved this idea too. And we began discussing about ways to use music and long distance control of drums and other things with compressed and decompressing air. And so in this way, we began to construct a a structure for this piece, I, I became interested in this idea of absolute time with Newton and then relativistic time with Einstein and then the destruction of time in black holes. And you know that piece, the refusal of time and the associated chamber opera has this structure of absolute to relative to destruction of time. So I was interested in thinking about the aesthetics of black holes and how that might be thought of and in this more associative open-ended way that Kentridge does so beautifully, uh, that was a, a, a great thrill for me. Peter, you've talked about the collaborations of, of art and science. Are there times when it collides or it's difficult? And are there times when it's just so valuable that there's a synergy between it? There are difficulties. I, I know early on in the collaboration with William Kentridge, he said, you know, Peter, I don't want to make an illustrated science lecture. And I said, I totally agree. And I don't want to be the science advisor to an art project to give it the sort of simulation of being authentic, the way you get an ex-police officer to come in and make your series of a police procedural seem more authentic. So we had a long discussion about that. And I think that there's a way in which what I see, I mean, I don't want to lay down rules for what counts or doesn't count as good collaborations. I think there are many different kinds between art and science. But I do think that what appeals to me is when art and science can collaboratively see in working together a way of advancing understanding as a kind of inquiry. And not to make art into a research endeavor in simple imitation of a laboratory, for instance, but to say or to explore what the meanings of black holes are for us. What is it that we find so associatively interesting? Because the scientists don't live outside 
of a world of metaphor. They don't live outside of certain aesthetic assumptions about the way images function and circulate. And artists don't live outside the world of scientific, technical, medical concerns. So I think there are ways to collaborate, but it's not simply aestheticizing a scientific image. If you want to see a sort of book of horrors, Google nano art, and you'll see tens of thousands of terrible, kitschy pieces of a simple kind of aestheticization of scientific work. So I think that there are places where what scientists are after or what artists are after may be different. There are ways in which the intersection of them can misfire, but there are also ways that we can learn from each other. We can explore these issues and deepen our understanding, recognizing that we do live in some ways in the same overarching world, scientists learning from the aesthetics of image making that artists have produced and artists learning from the concerns that scientists bring forward. Peter, this is absolutely gold. (laughs) (laughs) Is there something, Peter, in this interview that you'd like to say, I'm putting you on the soapbox now, that hasn't been said regarding the EMT image? Let me say something personal. For me, since so much of my concern, whether it's in filmmaking or the history of science or my interest in scientific work itself, revolves around the image. When I came across this project, when I began to work with Shep Doleman, the then director of the Event Horizon Telescope, and got to know the many of the collaborators around the world, it was, I think, the most riveting, exciting project that I've ever been part of. And so it's been a thrill for me, really, from start to finish. What we're after now is to look at a different supermassive black hole, one that is still big. It's still millions of times more massive than the sun, but it's much smaller. It would You would come to its event horizon if it was centered at our sun around the orbit of Mercury. So not as big as the whole solar system, but a small part of it. And one of the things about that is that it's because it's smaller, objects can go around it much more quickly. I mean, it can it can bring a star into orbit around it in a matter of years, which is amazing. I mean, that is, you, something could pull a star around in the time that our sun pulls a planet around. But because it's so much smaller, because things get around it so much faster, we really want to make a movie of it. And so uh, now that's what I've been obsessed with, with my colleagues, is figuring out how to actually make a movie of this of the changes that are going on right up near the event horizon itself. And so this, again, combines so much of what I'm interested in. I, I just finished a feature-length film about this quest to make an image called The Edge of All We Know. And uh, it's just been completely absorbing to me, this whole project. And I'm excited to see what happens next. Professor Peter Gallison, thank you. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne and the Centre of Visual Art. Thanks to our guest, Peter Gallison. Your hosts were Dr Andy Horvath and Dr Susie Fraser. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. This episode was recorded on the 13th of August, 2020.